Today's scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 2 and 10 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's kick this off with prayer. Let's ask for God's blessing. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us, your people, for you made the promise that when we gather under the banner of the gospel through the summoning of your spirit, you would speak. And so, Lord, speak, for we are listening. Oh, God, we ask especially that you would humble us so that we could truly be receptive and receiving of all the things that you want to say and let it not be interrupted with any thoughts that are inconsistent with the truths that we are about to hear. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the promises, the commands, the hope, as well as the dream that is to come into reality that is for your people. Lord, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, it's been once said that you don't know where you're going until you first know where you've been. In other words, if you're not aware of the past, you never get to where you need to be. Be? Yes, be, as in the person you are to be. You know, one of the stories that's frequently told this time of year is the one of Ebenezer Scrooge from Charles Dickens, the classic A Christmas Story. For those of you who are familiar, you'll remember that this Ebenezer fella, he needed to be different. He needed to change for the better. And if you remember how the story goes, the genesis of his transformation comes with the visitation of the ghost of Christmas past, a spirit who recounts things that happened long ago to serve as a foundation for Ebenezer to be the person that he needs to be in light of the Christmas spirit. Now, in many ways, that story is really a story of Christmas in terms of how we should be affected by it. When Christmas visits us at the end of every new year, we should be challenged the way good old Ebenezer was to where we should be different. But sadly, far too often and too many do not change and we do not become what we were before or ever be different than we were before. Excuse me. Yeah. Why? We're too busy living a fast-paced, forward-driven, frantic life to where the opportunity to change just passes us by. Why? Because we're buying presents. We're hosting parties. We're fighting parents. And as a result, 
the opportunity that should arrive in packaged form goes right on by. Mm. Goes right on by. It is my prayer this holiday season, things will be different for you. And to help facilitate you answering my prayers, this year's Advent Sermon Series entitled The Stories of Christmas Past, where for the next four Sundays, we're going to be taking a look at the past, not only from our frame of reference, but for those who were part of the original Christmas story. How? By looking at the Old Testament stories that are referenced in Matthew's account of the Christmas story in his gospel. Okay? And it is my hope that as we take a look at these historical Old Testament narratives, it will also lay a foundation for you so that you can move forward into the new year to be different. And you can move forward towards that from here on out. And today we kick off by looking at the Old Testament reference that is perhaps most commonly known, which is Isaiah chapter 7. Because as we take a look at what Isaiah is going to teach us about Christmas It will lay truly a solid foundation for us so that we can be different than what we were before. And the way Isaiah is going to do it is in this context of what is known as a dire situation, a dire situation. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. First, the unavoidable problem of dire situations. Number two, the two choices we face when we're in a dire situation. And finally, the only hope we have in dire situations, the unavoidable problem, the two choices we face, and the only hope we have in dire situations. So let's begin by looking at the first, the unavoidable problem of dire situations read again with me verse one and two of our passage where it reads as follows in the days of ahaz the son of jotham the son of uzziah king of judah rezin the king of syria and pekah the son of remaliah the king of israel came up to jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it when the house of david was told syria is in league with ephraim The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind now In order to understand what we just read, we have to know a little historical background. So come back with me. At this point in Bible history, the nation of Israel, which remember was originally comprised of 12 family tribes, were now made up of two nations at war with one another. Think of it kind of like how it is in Korea, where you have North and South Korea. One people group divided and at war with one another. You had the much smaller nation of Judah in the south, ruled by a king named Ahaz, and then you had the much larger nation of Israel up in the north, ruled by a king named Pekah. So here you have a situation where you have Jews in the north at war with their brothers, Jews in the south. And to complicate matters, far out west, there is a grumbling, there is a rumble, there is a threat known as Assyria, who was basically, at this point, beating the snot out of everybody. Uh, Think back with me, back to your middle school days. For those of you flushing folks, you can remember, right? You guys remember that one dude in middle school who had the reputation of someone you don't want to mess with, right? That this guy had the reputation of being able to beat everyone up, even that elementary bully you were terrified, thinking that no one could beat? That was Assyria. At this point in history, Assyria just defeated Egypt, who many thought could never be defeated. And at this present moment, they were manhandling Babylon, therefore making Assyria the most terrifying, the most threatening force on the planet in this time and place. In other words, Assyria was a bully. It was a bully. And what do you do with bullies? You guys remember what you do with bullies? You have one of two options. Option number one, You can get all your friends together and all their associates and gang up on this bully in the hope of defeating him so that 
He will have his place and not mess with you anymore, right? That's option number one. Option number two is what? Right? You can kiss up to the bully in the hopes that you'll butter them up to where they'll leave you alone, or even better, they're willing to protect you so long as you're willing to pay this thing known as tribute to them. Right? Well, it turns out the nation of Israel, the one up north, they went for option number one. And they were able to successfully secure Syria as a battle partner. And also they were coming to Judah saying, hey, we want you to help us defeat this bully known as Assyria. But wait a minute. Remember, Israel and Judah are at war with each other. They have a lot of history of animosity with one another. Okay? So you see when Syria and Israel send an invitation to the king of Judah, Ahaz, it wasn't a very cordial invitation like, hey, dear brother, would you join me in beating the bully in the playground? It wasn't like that at all. You know what it was? It was more like this. Join us or die. That's essentially what was going on, right? Join us or die. And so understandably, King Ahaz, he's freaking out because not only does he have to worry about this big bully known as Assyria, but even in his own backyard, amongst his neighbors, Israel and Syria are against him, his family, and his people. Ahaz was in a dire situation where he was stuck between a rock and a hard place and he had nowhere else to go. And as a result, what is he? He's a person who's filled with fear and frustration, confusion and concern. That's what he's in. Now, I know none of us in here are kings of a nation, but it sure does feel like that sometimes, right? It does. Because haven't we all and don't we still chronically battle fear and frustration, confusion and concern? Of course we do. All of us do all the time. You see, you don't have to be the potentate of an ancient Near Eastern country to feel like you're in a dire situation. No, 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 no. The only thing that you need to be able to relate to a king back then is to suffer great fear and worry. By the way, that's the standard definition of dire. Did you know that? Great fear and worry. Great fear and worry. Like a king. Many of you have people in your lives who you feel incredibly responsible for, whether it be to your elderly parents, whether it be to your siblings, whether it be to your young children. And like a king, many of you have certain possessions and resources that you need to guard and protect from those who are trying to take it away from you, whether it be your cash, your car, your house, your health. And also like a king, some of you, many of you have more money than others, have been better educated than others, have had more privileges and opportunity than others, and yet all that doesn't mean anything in terms of stopping problems and crisis and dire situations from happening in your life. I mean, just consider Ahaz for just a moment. For those of you who aren't aware, this guy, throughout his childhood and most of his adult life, had nothing to worry about. You know why? Because his father... Jotham and his grandfather Uzziah, they were awesome kings of Judah, where during their reign, there was long prosperity, there was flourishing economics, there were fortified cities, no foreign nations coming against them. Uzziah lived most of his life in living in such peace and, some, and prosperity. But then what happens the moment he becomes king? Dire situation intrudes into his life. Oh, dear poor Ahaz, right? 
Take another listen at what it says in the middle of verse 2 to describe the condition that Ahaz was in in this present moment. He said, quote, Isaiah says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, this is such an interesting way to describe Ahaz's fear because I find it so insightful. Isaiah is conjuring up images of a vast forest filled with healthy, abundant trees. But yet, it says, even in that condition, what does it say? In the original Hebrew, it literally says, the trees of the trees shook in the wind. If you've ever been to the forest, you'll know that the trees there are very huge, very big, very healthy and robust. Why? Well, for two reasons. Because the soil that the trees are in, that are rooted in, are rich with minerals and nutrients and abundant sunlight and and certain amount of perfect humidity and so forth. But the second reason why trees do so well in forests is because of other trees where they serve as a canopy of community, serving and working together, sharing resources, protecting one another from the elements and the forces. You know, in many ways, the forest is a perfect metaphor to describe the prosperity that Judah had, the strong community it enjoyed, and the uninterrupted safety that it lived out. And yet, none of that was able to take away or neutralize the destabilization of dire situations from happening to them. So here's the takeaway. Here's the point. It doesn't matter, folks, how much money you have. It doesn't matter how well educated you are. It doesn't matter what community you belong to. The reality of living in this world is you will inevitably suffer dire situations. You could be the most powerful king in the ancient world, or you can be a very well-established New Yorker. It doesn't matter. Dire situations are going to happen because in a broken, fallen world, dire situations are unavoidable. And because that is so, you will come to discover that you only have two choices before you when you are faced with that kind of situation in front of you. And what are those two choices? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point. The two choices we face in a dire situation. Pick it back up with me in in our passage. We're starting in verse 10. We read, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. It is too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Pause right there. Your attention, please. So, going back to Ahaz, the man is freaking out. Israel and Syria are basically sending him letters with one ultimatum. Basically, join us or die. Two options that don't seem preferable to Ahaz. And at this point, who shows up? The prophet Isaiah. And he says these words of encouragement to him in verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now we're thinking, what in the world is this man saying? What are you talking about, Isaiah? What do you mean, ask for a sign? What is this sign that you're referencing? Well, if you ever study scripture, you will come to find that one of the ways that God repeatedly and constantly shows that he is a trustworthy God, and not only so, but a powerful God, is by giving a sign, some sort of cosmic collateral, if you will, to show that he is a God of his word, and not only a God of his word, but a God of severe competence right and that you can trust him and they can put your faith in his power for you right 
So some of these signs might be supernatural events like a burning bush. Some of them might be natural phenomena, which I'll give an example in just a moment. Some of it might be future events that haven't happened. So let me backtrack. What's an example? Genesis, the book, tells the story of Noah and the flood. You guys remember, right? God sends a worldwide flood because he needs to punish wicked humanity that is only thinking and feeling and doing evil all the time, breaking the heart of God, right? And as a result of all that happening, once the judgment is over, God tells Noah that he will no longer give that kind of a condemning wrath against humanity. And as a promise of his power to restrain his wrath and the trustworthy that he will keep to this promise, he points to what? The rainbow, right? The rainbow. So that every time it rains and through natural phenomena, a rainbow appears, that will be a constant reminder to God's people and really to all of humanity that God will stay true to his word and that he will keep his power in check because of his trustworthiness to the promise of never condemning the world again through water. That is a sign. A sign is a phenomenon that promises God's trustworthiness and his power. And here in our passage, the prophet Isaiah, when he's telling Ahaz, ask God for a sign, what he's really telling him is, hey, give God the opportunity to assure you that he is trustworthy and that his power is for you. Right? Trust God. Believe that he is trustworthy. Have faith that he will use his power in your favor. But what does Ahaz say instead in response? Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test now when you first read this response of ahaz it almost sounds like this man is super spiritual someone who's so god-fearing so pietistic so humble oh look at this ahaz guy he's in a very bad situation where he can be so easily consumed of his own self-interest but what is it i will not put the lord god to the test you know if you read scripture you'll find that command periodically of not putting god to the test and what that basically means is, is that you will not take advantage of God. You will not try to manipulate God. You will not try to hustle God to where you will abuse his grace, so to speak. And so it seems that Ahaz is trying to humble himself and honor the Lord by putting God's name first before his own welfare and the welfare of his people. What a guy, right? Well, not necessarily. Because Isaiah, who's inspired by the Spirit, has the ability to see through the character of this man. And as a result, he says what he does in verse 13. And he, Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In a nutshell, what, what Isaiah is telling him is like, Dude, how dare you? How dare you put up this front, this two-face, and act all politically correct, or in this context, religiously correct? Why? See, Isaiah could see right through Ahaz. And what he didn't see was humility. He didn't see honor. Instead, he saw Ahaz's choice, and it was the wrong choice. You see, one of the things that this case study shows us about Ahaz is that when you are in a dire situation like he was, you'll come to find that you have two options, two choices, and only two choices as a response to this dire situation that you are in. And what are these choices? You can choose to trust God, or you can choose to trust in something or someone that isn't God. And of course, that begs the question, who or what does Ahaz trust in if it's not the one and only true God? You know the answer? 
the king of Assyria. That's right. Ahaz goes for option number two. He's puckering up. Read what it says in 2 Kings, verse 16, starting in verse 7, it says, So Ahaz sent messenger to Tiglath-Pilzer, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Rezin. Hmm. I want to draw your attention to two things. Let's keep that passage up for just a moment. I want to draw your attention to two things that we just read here. Okay? The first is what it says in verse 8. What does he do? He takes all the vessels, the holy vessels, the gold, the silver used as part of worshiping of God in the temple. He takes all of it and he gives it to the king of Assyria. And not only does he do that, what does it do in the previous verse, verse 7? How does he address the king of Assyria? What he says, I am your servant, I am your son. Little Bible trivia here. In the ancient world, do you know who was above a king? It was a god. The only person that was above a king was a god, which is why kings in the ancient world were frequently referred to as sons of God. Now hold that in mind and consider the behavior of Ahaz. Okay, he takes all of the vessels that are used for worshiping and gives it to the king of Assyria. And not only that, he refers to the king of Assyria, not as a fellow king, not as a pure king, not even as a superior king. But he says, I am your son. I am your son. In his behavior, how is he treating the king of Assyria? He's treating him like a god, right? Someone who he is to worship someone who he is to fear someone who he has to obey here we come to find the two options that are before you when you're in a dire situation you can choose to either to trust in the one and only true god or you can choose to trust in a false god those are the only options you have when you're in a dire situation there is no other choice it's either god or or false God. Now, I know some of you in here, maybe if you're investigating Christianity, you're probably thinking, I'm a little crazy here, right? Pastor, what are you talking about? Dire situations, those are my only two options? No, no, no. I have other options than that, you know? Options like money, Google, my friends, my family, government programs, other things that I can lean on, other things I could depend on, other things I can turn to to help me out whenever I'm in a bind, whenever I'm in a frantic, chaos, chaotic, dire moment, right? I have other options, not a false God. Oh, friend, don't you know what a false God is? Are you so narrow-minded to think that false gods are those only little, like, four or five-inch things made out of wood, clay, or iron that people just burn incense and worship? If you've been coming to NCF long enough, you should know better. What is a false God? A false God is anything in this world, whether it be a person, a performance, a position or possession, a program or proficiency that you trust in the way you should trust in God. 
That's a false idol. That's a false God. Consider these words from Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He writes, quote, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe the kind of relationships to something, but perhaps the best one is worship, end quote. There are a lot of false gods out there to your choosing that you can choose to lean on away from the one true God because those are the two options, folks. When you're in a crisis, when you're in a desperate moment, you can either choose to trust the one and only true God or the very many false gods that are out there. And the question is, which one are you going to choose? Now, of course, answering that question requires you to answer first another. And that is, which God is the most reliable, the most trustworthy, the most powerful to where trusting in him is warranted and justified? And that leads me to the final point. The only hope we have in a dire situation, situation, excuse me, read again our passage starting in verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Here Isaiah tells Ahaz that even though he doesn't want a sign, Isaiah is going to give it to him anyway. Okay, And it's in the form of a future event that will happen long after Ahaz is gone. And so you wonder, well, wait a minute. Then why is Isaiah even bothering giving Ahaz a sign if Ahaz isn't even going to live long enough to experience it? Well, because this promise, this sign, it's not for Ahaz the individual. It's for the people whom he represents as king. Who are Ahaz's people? You know who they are? They're God's people. Yes, your people, my people, our people. It's the people of God. This is for us. This is for them. And what is this sign? It's a sign of some woman who miraculously gives birth. And the reason why I say so is because, as it says, she's a virgin. She's never encountered, never experienced any sort of intimacy that could produce a child. And yet, Isaiah says this virgin will give birth to a child. And if you read carefully at what it says in 15, you'll come to find how this child truly sets God apart as the most trustworthy God of all. Read again what it says. He, the child, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now you see that phrase, eat curds and honey? That's a very, very important phrase because it really helps us to understand what makes this child so unique to where any child born before him and any child born after him will never be like this one. Let me explain. 
curds. You guys know what curds are? It's a butter-like substance that's very sweet that they would put on bread, crackers, vegetables, and so forth. And honey, well, you know what honey is. You know, we all have honey, right? Curds and honey. And here's the thing that you might not realize is that back in the ancient world, curds and honey was considered, they were dubbed, the food of the gods. The food of the gods. And the reason why they were given this illustrious name is because of the fact that it never spoiled. Curds and honey were one of those things that had tremendous long shelf life and giving the characteristic of long life, eternality, kind of the characteristics of the gods, hence the food of the gods. But here's something else that you might not be aware of. Curds and honey, because of its shelf life, was the primary food for those who are wanderers, who are homeless, who are vagabonds, people who needed some sort of sustenance that could be with them because they had no financial resources, no social stabilization to be rooted down in one place. So what did they typically eat? Curds and honey. You know, in many ways, curds and honey is a very paradoxical food because on the one hand, It's so rich in flavor and has long shelf life, giving it the idea of being worthy of the gods. And yet, on the other hand, it was the primary staple food of those who, for all intents and purposes, suffered dire situations the most. They were homeless. They were victims. They were slaves. They were vagabonds. Now, if it is true that you are what you eat, that means this child eating this food is also paradoxical as well. This child, on the one hand, has honor, has worth, that is worthy to be praised, worthy to be worshipped, and yet he allows himself to be treated like a slave, like a criminal, like a vagabond, someone who has suffered tremendous dire situations. How do you make sense of that? You make sense of it in what it says in 15 in terms of when he starts to eat the curds and the honey. When does he start to eat it? When he starts being able to discern evil from good, to choose what is right from wrong, right? Now, what in the world does that mean? It basically means this. God, who is the creator of the world, is so trustworthy and is so powerful in his love for you. You know what he did? He came into the world as a helpless babe, as Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in a little manger in Bethlehem, Why? So there can be a point in his life when he's old enough to make the decision to where even though he deserves all rights, all privileges, all honor, all esteem, he will voluntarily choose to be treated the polar opposite, where he will be shamed, where he will be spit upon, where he will be beaten, where he will be humiliated. Why? Because what is the point of the Christmas story? It's the gospel story, right? What is the gospel? The gospel is God came into the world as Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, so that he could experience for you and me the dire situation you and I deserve most of all. Utter rejection, degrading humiliation, and God's wrath. We have one word for it. We call it hell, right? God came into this world so that he could pay the full penalty of the dire situation that you deserve to go to, but because he is your substitute, because you put your faith in him, because you choose to believe he is trustworthy, that he loves you that much, that it compelled him with power to go in and be powerless, that's what the gospel is all about. 
And when you grasp that, now all of a sudden, you see a God who is more trustworthy than any false God would ever dare to claim for themselves. And when you understand that was the dire situation, the ultimate dire situation that you were spared, you know what that means? That means whatever dire situation you're going through right now, which honestly pales in comparison to that, won't wreck you. It won't fill you with dread. It won't tempt you to chase after a false gods that leads you nowhere right? except to your own self-destruction. You know, one of the things that I have told you guys many times is that one of the reasons why you need to believe in hell is so that you don't make the mistake of thinking something that you're going through now to be the real hell when in fact that isn't the real hell, right? Jesus came to spare us from the ultimate direst situation of all so that whatever dire situation you face, you know it's nothing. That God has the power. If he has the power to save you from that, he's able to save you from this. And even if he doesn't, at least not in the way that you think, it's not going to wreck you the way that you think it will. That's the hope of what the Christmas story is trying to convey. And that's what this story is challenging you to believe. But here's my question. Is that your response? Some of you right now, you have a dire situation going on in your life. A loved one severely sick. Finances not stretching to the end of the month. Crisis looming in the horizon that you don't even know, but you just feel in your bones is there. What do you do? You look at Isaiah 7 and you look at the promise. You look at the sign the virgin who gives birth to the son who has saved us from the most dire situation of all. He's the one that you turn to. He's the one who you trust. Not in yourself, not anyone else, not any other thing. But is that going to be your faith? I want to end with a couple next steps for you to think about. First, if you're here investigating the Christian faith and today's message compelled you to step forward in faith and you want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, Take this time now to pray to the Lord, ask him to be in your life and submit your life to him as your king. And then please come talk to me afterwards. I would love to help you with some next steps and some resources to help you in this wonderful journey you're about to begin. Number two, take some time this week and ask yourself two questions. What dire situation is controlling me right now? What dire situation is controlling me right now? Is it a relationship? Is it a work-related thing? Is it a church issue going on in your life? Is it a health issue? And number two, what false God have I, oh, go back. What false God have I looked to save me from it? What false God is it? And then finally, share your answers with an Oikos group member, a loved one, right? And come up with two to three acts of faith that assumes you are trusting God instead. So for example, this is a, something that I thought about. Let's say, for example, you're currently unemployed looking for work, Right? What are some two practical exercises that you can do so that you can show your trust in God? You know, I came up with number one. Instead of staying up late at night looking at the classifieds, you just choose to sleep after prayer as an act of faith. How many of you guys rob yourself of sleep because you're so worried, you're so preoccupied? Is it possible that instead of following your instincts of saying, I need to stay up, I need to go on Google, I need to talk to people, I need to network, just say, God, I'm going to go to bed. Because you promise in your word that you give your beloved sleep, and I know I'm your beloved, so in an act of faith, I'm going to act like you love me by going to bed. I'm going to go to sleep. 
How about this? Instead of imagining worst-case scenarios, which we all tend to do, some of you guys are very creative in the way that you think, better than my son sometimes. You think of doomsday scenarios where certain faces and behaviors will emerge from the people around you. Instead of letting your brain go short-circuit and go crazy with certain scenarios in your mind, right? how about meditating on Scripture? Two Scriptures that I always turn to whenever I'm in bed unable to sleep, Romans 8.28 you know, and Matthew 6.25 to 34. Right? Reflect on it. Think about it. Use that Scripture to shut up that voice or that storyteller in your head creating pictures of cataclysmic doom. But instead, focus on the peace that Jesus came for this Advent season. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would help us to understand your truth, that you are a trustworthy God, that you are a powerful God, and that the power stems from your incredible, life-giving, merciful, gracious love for us in Jesus. Father, many of us uh, may not have to have <clears throat> crisis going on in our lives to feel like Ahaz. It could simply be uh, little degrees of change and uncertainties that make us spiral into fear and anxiety. Oh, Lord, let us not make the mistake of Ahaz and just use spiritual veneer and hypocrisy to put up a false front that we're trusting in you. No, God, let us heed the words of your servant Isaiah and look to the promise of the Son who was born to the virgin so that as we look to him, we would be reminded that no matter how bad things look now, they are not nearly as bad as it was before we were in Christ. And because we are now in him, we have nothing to fear. God, I hope and pray that when fear and frustration, confusion and cloudiness comes upon us, oh God, save us from that anxiety, save us from that dire situation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.